Fred. So far, we've already had a service with celebration, singing songs of truth, and then hearing from uh, new members as they have entered into this covenantal relationship with us. But I'm going to start a little bit darker this morning. I'm going to start more in a place of, of a little bit more vulnerability because I, I think that we don't always feel the celebration. We don't always feel like the blessings are evident that they are here. And the vulnerability aspect is just in my own life that this has been a hard season. I find that I'm just so easily overwhelmed. It's not been a bad season, but just a hard season. Last night, I was, I was trying to work on my message. I was here late, and, and man, it just the prospect of getting this message done and all the things that still had to happen today, it was just overwhelming. I'm easily discouraged at times. This isn't a chastisement, but last week, you know, we started, I started the service, and I knew a lot of people were going to be traveling last week. People had told me, uh, they had informed me, hey, we're not leaving the church. We're just on a, on a trip. But we started the service, and there were like 20 people here at most. And now it got to a bigger number once we started, once the message came around, um, which I guess is a good thing, although I'm also doing the music, so I'm not sure what that means. They don't like the music. I'm... But it, I found myself discouraged. Like, what's going on? What's happening? Easily wearied. Man, how, how many times I just go home and I, I just tell Hannah, I just need to crash. I, I just need to lie down for a while. Life is hard. It's tiring sometimes. It feels like the blessings have just run dry. It feels like I'm running on fumes and I don't even know when or where the finish line is. Now, when I'm at those low points, I found that there's a check engine light that turns on for me, an indicator that things aren't quite right. And that indicator so I start looking for all of these other things to give me just that little kick, just that little bit of extra fuel to just get a few more miles down the road. The problem is that when I'm at that point, that low point, I rarely look in the right places. That isn't to say I'm looking in sinful places, although there is that danger. It's more that I'm looking to, for the wrong things to be the solution that I need. It's like knowing oil goes in cars, oil is good for cars, so maybe, maybe I, I'm, I'm running dry here, so maybe I'll just pour some oil in the gas tank, and maybe that will just get me a little bit further. But putting a good thing in the wrong place doesn't push us further. It just makes the issues worse. Have you ever felt that way? Just tired weary, that you're running on fumes, you need something to just give you that extra little boost going forward. My question is this for all of us. When the blessings seem to have dried up, where do we turn? Where do we go when we feel like we're just running on fumes? Our passage this week was, for me, both a great encouragement as well as a reminder that the source of blessing is Jesus, and that in him we find the greatest blessings of all. 
Our big idea this morning is that Jesus manifests his glory through the abundance of his grace. Jesus manifests his glory to us through the abundance of his grace given to us. This morning, we're going to look at the first of the signs which reveal Jesus' identity. Uh, As we've been going in the Gospel of John, you can already go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. So far, at the very beginning, we looked at John chapter 20, verse 31. And John chapter 20, verse 31, really is the key passage for us to understand what's going on in the Gospel of John. And in that passage, John says, I wrote to you these signs, I've given you these signs as a witness to who Christ is, so that you may believe in Christ, the Son of God, and in believing in him, you may have life in his name. So the goal John has is John's going to give us different signs that answer the question, who is Jesus? But in giving us those signs, the result he wants, the response, is that we would place our faith in Jesus and have life. So what, here's what we're going to do in this passage. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to just see how this sign fits that model that John tells us about in John chapter 20. That this sign bears witness to Jesus and that the response, the appropriate response, is belief in Jesus. That's the general purpose. But once we're done with the general purpose, we're going to go back and we're going to look that there's something else going on. There's something underneath the surface that Christ is wanting to teach us, that he wants to show us something more. And John is very specific in including this sign. So let's go ahead and look at verses that start out with John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now this first paragraph gives us the setting. In our previous passage, Jesus just called his first disciples. He has at least five disciples at this point. And at the end of the passage, Jesus gives them a promise. He says, you will see greater things. He ta- he's talking to Nathaniel. He's already done something in front of Nathaniel that revealed who he was. But he tells him, you're going to see greater things. And so we come to this passage, and this first paragraph gives us the setting. Now, Right off the bat, I need to give some caution about this first paragraph. There are some hard things to understand about what's going on here. And, and just, there are good people that disagree about the meaning of how maybe Jesus responds or how Mary acts after. We're going to work through those. I'll give you my opinion on what I think those things mean. But here, here's the thing that you need to know. Whatever we land on, the the opinions on this first part in in understanding the setting, it does not change the meaning, the overall meaning of the sign that we'll see in the second paragraph. So we'll work through them, we'll try to understand them, but the overarching meaning is still going to be the same no matter what position that you have. So what's the setting? Where is Jesus at this time? He's at a wedding. Now, it's a celebration and both Mary, Jesus, and his disciples are all there. But if we just go and think about this as a wedding, 
with our understanding of a wedding, we're, we're going to miss some things. Um, one of the things that's true that people say, if you want to see some of the differences between cultures, the two places you can go to instantly see how cultures are different are two events, a wedding and a funeral. If you want to see how things are different, that's, a, that's the case. Now, I grew up in Brazil, and weddings for me were a completely different thing. First of all, I have never been to a wedding in Brazil that started at least, it was always more than 30 minutes late. If you tried to start a wedding on time, no one was there. My sister was ready on time for her wedding, and she had to sit in the car because none of the guests had arrived because the expectation is that the bride is going to be at least an hour late. That's just the reality. I've never been to a wedding on time. I've never been to a wedding in Brazil where the wedding party, first of all, it's not like here's the girls and here's the guys. Like It's couples, and they all come in, and they're couples that are significant. I've never been to a wedding where the wedding party was not at least 30 people. Usually, it was more. I've never been to a wedding that was small. My brother's wedding had 1,100 people go to the wedding. That's normal. Now, imagine my surprise coming here. The size of the wedding parties in Brazil are bigger than the attendance of most weddings here. The weddings here start on time. The weddings in Brazil are at least an hour and a half long. Weddings here are done in 30 minutes and on time. They haven't even started in Brazil by then. So it's different. Now, these aren't bad things. They're different. Now, when we come to the weddings in of the Jewish people, they were a celebration. Those times, this was often the biggest celebration that you will ever have for you. you, you. You're not going to have a, a 15th birthday party like they do in Brazil. You're not going to have a huge graduation. You're not going to have those things. Your time to shine was your wedding. And what would happen is the, the groom would go to the bride's house when everything was made ready. He would go with his friends. They would get the bride, and they would parade them through town so that everyone could congratulate them. They would go to the groom's house, and they were treated as kings and queens. And the party was a week long. That's not how I would have chosen to have my sp spend my honeymoon, but that's what they did. They had this week-long party with all of their friends, all of these people coming. But even though it's all based on them, there is a responsibility for the couple. It is the groom's responsibility to be a host for people who are coming to his home. And there, those were important things. Now, I've been to many of your houses, and I can say that all of you have been fantastic hosts to me. But Eastern culture hosting is on a different level. I'm not offended by anything that we've ever had. I've gone to your house. But the element of what is important to them, it's a matter of shame. It's a matter of honor, of pride, of being a good host. So we come to our passage, and there's a problem. What's the problem? What's the uh-oh that comes in? The wine is gone. The thing that everyone is going to enjoy to celebrate the wine is done. That's not insignificant. There was a Pharisee saying even there, without wine, there is no joy. They are, this is something. And, and even a lot of my commentary said this, I'm, I'm, so I'm going to believe it. But there were even elements where you could have legal action taken against you if you weren't a good host. 
So when this couple is starting out and they don't have wine, what are they, what's starting out with their marriage? Do you think they're starting out well in the eyes of all their neighbors, of the important people of town, their family, that they're all there, they're all expecting them to have this, and the wine's gone? This is a big deal. So Mary, somehow, maybe she's a relative, maybe she's a, a close friend, Mary knows about this issue. The rest of the people don't. Because she's telling guests like Jesus and the disciples, the master of the feast, as we're going to see later, he doesn't know. Mary knows, though. And Mary goes to Jesus. Now, I can imagine her pulling Jesus aside and telling him about this problem. Now, here, this next part, these next two verses, that's where a lot of the confusion lies. Because Mary comes to Jesus, tells him a problem, and Jesus' response to us just seems off. It just doesn't seem right. So we're going to work through that. Like I said, it, it, there's different opinions on this, but I'll tell you, tell you what I think. So this is what he, Jesus says. She tells him, the, the wine is gone. There is no wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that seems a little weird, talking to your mother that way. I'm not recommending it. Don't do that. The reality is we can't know everything that's happening, but there are things that we do know. For example, we know that Jesus is not disrespecting his mother. What is one of the commandments? Honor your father and your mother. Jesus is not breaking one of the commandments in how he's addressing his mother here. So don't take this as, wow, look at how disrespectful Jesus was. We know that's not the case. Jesus isn't saying he doesn't love his mother anymore. He's going to call her woman again while he's on the cross. And he's going to say, woman, he, this is your son, pointing to John. John, this is your mother. He loves her. He still cares for her. He wants to know that she's going to be okay. So this is not an element of a lack of love. But what is happening here? Why not call her mom? This is my opinion. At this point, Jesus' ministry is in a change. Jesus has spent 30 years being a son, doing those things. But what is happening right now in the gospel? Jesus is being revealed. Yes, Jesus is Mary's son, but he's so much more than that. He's also Mary's savior. He's also Mary's God. So there's an element here where Jesus changing the way in which he addresses his mother. He's letting her know that there's a change now that is happening. That his main ministry now is not as her son. His main ministry is as her savior. And he says, what does this have to do with me? It's an expression of speech. It's literally, what to you and to me? How, what, how, what does this have to do with me? Why is this my concern? Again, I think what's happening here is that Jesus is gently reminding Mary that his purpose, the reason he is here, is much greater than solving problems like wine at parties. Now, one of the reasons I think that is because of what Jesus says next. My hour has not yet come. Now, as you read through John, you're going to come across that theme of Christ's hour several times. And multiple times in the first half of the book, Jesus is going to say, it's not my hour. John, uh, the author, is going to write a little aside. He wasn't arrested because it was not his hour. 
But there is a time when he does come to the point where he says, my hour has come. Well, what is that hour? It's the hour when the Son of Man is glorified. How is he glorified? He's revealed as the Son of God who takes the sins of the world. He reveals himself for the purpose of his death, burial, resurrection, and glorification. When he comes to that point in the second half, we'll start seeing that in chapter 12 and then in chapter 17, Jesus will come to the point where he says, the hour has come. Father, glorify your son. What is the hour? It's the hour of his death, burial, and resurrection where he is fully revealed. It's not kept back anymore. But this isn't that hour. So Jesus says, this isn't the time for me to be revealed. Now there's a principle here for us that Jesus' main concern is not our earthly needs, but our spiritual needs. Does Jesus care about the earthly needs? Yeah. In fact, we're going to see he actually does solve the problem in this text. But what we often lack what we often misunderstand is that we think that that's God's main goal, is my earthly comfort. We demote Jesus to the position of a genie in a lamp. God, your, your job is to give me the things that I want. I'm going to ask for these things. These are the things I need, and that's your job. Should we ask for, to, to take our cares to God? Yes. First Peter 5, 7, cast your cares. He cares for you. But don't misunderstand and think that that's Christ's main concern. What was the main thing he came for? Not our earthly needs, our spiritual needs. He came to save us. And he's not willing to put other, get, let other things get in the way of God's plan for him. Now there's some more confusion here as to how, why, how Jesus, uh, Mary responds to Jesus. Because it kind of seems like Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not interested. And then Mary still goes and says, to the servants, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. And it can seem a little weird. Now, some people take this as Mary manipulating Jesus. That Mary has Jesus' ear, and even though Jesus doesn't really want to do this, that she's going to go around this and, and kind of manipulate him into doing what she wants. In fact, this text is often used by people who pray to Mary as a justification, because they say, well, Jesus might not do it, but if I ask Mary, maybe Mary can change his mind. That's not what's happening. Mary is not our mediator. Timothy says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is not Mary. It's Jesus. So is Mary being disrespectful here? Is she going against him? I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that Mary is actually demonstrating submission. Well, well, you can ask, how is she demonstrating submission by including other people in the problem? Now she's bringing other people, and now Jesus is going to have to say no to them as well. I don't think that's what's happening. Why does she include the servants? Because the servants already know. Who are going to be the people that know about this problem at the party? The servants, for sure. If you've ever, some of you have worked as waiters, one of the things you never want to have to do is tell someone after they've ordered something, we ran out. Especially if it's like the main thing. Like if it's the special of the night, people are there and you're like, we don't have any more. So the servants are aware of the problem. And what does Mary do? Mary demonstrates submission. She says, do whatever he says. 
She doesn't guarantee that he's going to do a miracle. Jesus hasn't done a miracle at this point. She doesn't promise all these things, but what she knows, what does Mary know? That Jesus does the right thing. She has 30 years of experience of seeing that Jesus always does the right thing. So she doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she trusts him. She says, do whatever he says, because that's going to be the right thing. Now that's a principle for us. Jesus always does the right thing. Do we come with our problems to Jesus like Mary? Absolutely. But our response after is do whatever he says. Bring them to God, and then whatever he says, submit, trust, obey. Now, let's move on. Because Jesus is going to manifest his glory through the abundance of his grace. He's going to do a miracle. He's going to do a sign. Let's look at verse 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone jars where the Jew, uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to, or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus tells the servants, go fill the jars with water, and they fill them all the way up. This miracle is not sleight of hand. It's not Jesus bringing some Kool-Aid mix pouring it in real quick while nobody's looking. No, they're full to the brim. He then tells them, take some to the master of the feast. Now, if again you're a waiter and you're having this special event and the main dish runs out, who's the last person you want to take that to? Your boss? The master of the feast? And Jesus says, hey, dip some of this and go take it to the glass guy you would want to take it to. Now, I'm imagining the servants, and they're nervous because they're going to go and this is now going to start something in motion because they're going to give some water to this guy. This guy is going to call over the bridegroom and he's going to let him have it. You have offended me. You have offended my children and my children's children. It's going to blow up into this whole thing. But what happens? He takes, they take, take it to him. He takes a simp. His eyes open wide. He calls over the groom And he says, you have done something no one else does. Everyone else gives the good stuff first. And then, you know, when people aren't really being able to taste as much, then then they give the bad stuff. But you've saved the best for last. What a change of circumstances. What would have happened if Ed remained water? It would have been a totally different happening. Jesus performed an incredible miracle. He transformed water into wine. And not just any wine, but better wine, the best wine. What is Jesus doing? He's giving a sign. Jesus is demonstrating, I am sovereign over creation. I care for my creation. Jesus is manifesting his glory. And look at the result, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory. Why? Did he give them something, the wedding party, something they deserved? 
Did he do something that was owed to them? No, he gave them grace. They didn't deserve this, but he gave them unmerited favor. And how, what happened? He manifested his glory. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In demonstrating his grace and power, what Jesus is demonstrating is that he is the true Son of God. He is manifesting the glory of the Father because he and the Father are one. And there's a response to Jesus' revelations. His disciples believed in him. They saw the sign and they believed. This sign fits perfectly with the theme, the goal of John's gospel. He told us at the end, this is why I'm telling you about these signs, so that you may believe. And he's showing us this. The disciples saw and they believed. Jesus manifested his glory through the abundance of his grace. When we see God's grace, we must respond in kind. We must respond with belief. That's the goal of the book. Know who Jesus is and then respond in belief. That's the general purpose. Right now, I want to go back, though, and look at a specific lesson, though, that's going on here. Now, before I do this, I just, I just, I'm going to give a caution, okay? Just a big yellow flashing light caution here. We're going to go back through this passage, and we're going to look at a meaning, this meaning that's in this passage, not quite on the surface level, but another level down. One of the things that Jesus does, and then John later does in his gospel, is what Jesus says, there's often more meaning to it. Often meaning that people on that first glance, they miss it. And John does the same thing in his book. Now, here's the caution. There's lots of people that are always going to the Bible for hidden meaning. They're looking and they want to see, okay, let's, let's pull up this rock. Where's Jesus? There he is. All right, now let's find this rock. Oh, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. And Jesus is everywhere. Be careful. Before you start looking for hidden meanings... Really evaluate, what does the rest of the, is there support for this? Does the rest of the Bible support this? Does the context support this? Is the theme, is this consistent with, with what's happening here? Because sometimes, on the worst side, people who do this, they preach heresy. Or, maybe it's not heresy, maybe they're saying true things, but they're offering confusion because they're saying they found something in a text that's not there. And then when someone else goes to the Bible, they're like, I don't know how to find this because like, it seems like really random how some people see this here and, and they use the same story in Judges to have completely opposite meanings. Yes, those meanings are in the Bible, but like, how are they getting there? Let's be careful. So we're going to go through this process together and, and understand this. We already talked about the key passage at the end of the book in verse 31. Right now I want to look at another passage. If you have your Bible, go to the very beginning of the book in John 1 verse 14. Now, we've already talked a little bit about verse 14, and it says this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then there's a quick aside, but it continues in verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring 
grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Without Jesus, there is no grace. Grace does not come through the law. Look at verse 17. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus. This verse is saying Jesus is bringing something greater than the law. Jesus is bringing grace. Now this theme of Jesus bringing or being something greater is a theme we're going to see over and over throughout the entire gospel of John. We've already seen it some. In the passage right after the first prelude, we see John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better Lamb. He takes away the sins of the world, not just of the Jews. Jesus is better. In the next passage, Jesus at the very end makes a promise and he makes an allusion to the promise that was made to Jacob. Jacob saw something great. He saw heaven open and angels descending and ascending on a ladder. But he says, you're going to see that on the Son of Man. I'm the greater connection between heaven and earth. The true blessings of heaven come through me. Jesus is greater. Later on in the book, we're going to see lots of images like this, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need a better lineage. You need a better father. You need to be born of God, not just born of a woman. He tells the woman at the well, you need a better source of water, not the source of water from Jacob. I am the source of true water. You're going to worship not here or there. There's a better place to worship. We're going to see this theme over and over that Jesus is bringing something greater. And we see that in our passage now. Look back at our first paragraph. What is the problem that Jesus is talking about? The wine is gone. Now, throughout the Old Testament, wine is often used as a symbol of blessing. Psalm 104 talks about that, that wine is a thing that brings joy. It's a blessing. It's the result after the work. You receive this. But the wine's gone. Now, at this point in Jewish history, do you feel like, think the Jews are feeling like, if, they, if, if, if this life was a, was a party, do you think that they're at the beginning of the party where the wine is good or at the end of the party where there's no more wine? No more wine. They're under the rule of Rome. God hasn't spoken to them in 400 years. The blessings have dried up. The wine is gone. But they're looking for a solution. Like I shared earlier, that, that when we're in those dark places, we often look for something. I just need something to get me a little bit further. I just need something to push me a little bit more. And they're looking for things. And their idea is that the way the blessing is going to come is by holding to works of the law. And not only that, they're going to expand the works of the law. They're going to do even more things because that's how the blessing is going to return. Now we see that in the Gospels. Okay, so we have... We have good reason to think that's happening. Is it happening in our text? Well, look at verse 6. What does Jesus say? What does Paul or John specifically mention where this miracle is going to happen? In the jars of the Jewish rites of purification. That detail is not one that necessarily we need. He could have just said jars. 
but he specifically brings something out. Now, that, those jars of the Jewish rites of purification, there are elements in the Old Testament where it tells people that they are, there are times where they're to clean themselves, that they're supposed to do these things. But in Mark 7, verse 3 through 4, I'm going to read this real quick. There's a little bit more light on what's happening. Mark 7. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And that when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The Jews are meant to clean themselves under the law, but they've expanded it. They've gone into this tradition of the elders. They think that's what's going to bring back the blessing. Now, here's a principle that I want us to grasp. Man-made methods never bring God's true blessing. Man-made methods, man-made methods never bring God's true blessing. That's their hope, though. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're hoping is going to get them just a little bit further. But Jesus brings something so much better. Jesus doesn't bring more works. Jesus doesn't bring more reminders that they are dirty. Jesus brings grace. Jesus takes away the works of the law and in turn gives the blessings of grace. And I love this. Jesus uses this master of the feast. We don't know anything about him. But he uses this master to, to express a profound truth. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. From the Jewish perspective, when was the golden age of Israel? When was the wine sweet? Maybe it was under Abraham. Being in the household of Abraham and Isaac as they walked, walked out in faith. Maybe it was in the armies of the conquering King David. Maybe it was the temple of King Solomon in the time of peace and prosperity. Those, those were the sweet wine. That's what we want to get back to. But Jesus, Jesus isn't taking us something back to something that was good. Those were good. Jesus is taking us to something better. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The Jews thought their golden age was in the past. They thought the wine of blessings had run dry, but they were so wrong. The household of Abraham was nothing compared to the household of God. The conquest of David paled to the victory of the Lamb. The temple of Solomon was pitiful before the glory of the risen king. All of those were good wine, but they were nothing compared to what was coming. Jesus manifests his glory through the abundance of his grace. Here's the principle. True blessing and joy are not found in the past. They are found in Jesus. It can be so easy for us to just think, man, just a year ago, it was so good. 
just, just then, that was so good. That's not where the true blessing is. It's coming. It's found in Jesus. The Jews were looking to the wrong things as fuel in their tanks. The past wasn't bad, but there's something better. They were thinking that they could do other things and that would be, bring the blessing, but that's not where grace is found. So what does this mean for us? What's the personal lesson? First, let me, let me address those who might be here and do not know Jesus. You have a problem. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. Now, that might seem a little harsh, but you're not unique in that position. Every single person in this room started from that spot. We were born dead. We have this problem. We are separated from God because of our sins. Now we, the, the, the desire, Romans talks about this, that we all think that there's something we can do to fix this. That we're going to set this standard and we're going to follow this standard and we're going to do these things and that's how the blessing's going to come. I can achieve the blessings of God, but you can't. These works, these man-made methods are not going to bring blessing. What do we need? We need Jesus Jesus manifests his glory through the abundance of his grace. If you want to see Jesus' glory, then you need his grace. But his grace came with a cost. The transformation of our filthy works into the riches of his grace was not free. We are offered the sweet wine of grace because Jesus drank the bitter cup of wrath. We can drink the sweet wine of grace because Jesus drank the bitter cup of wrath. He took each of our places on that cross. He fulfilled the law. He did the rites of purification so that what we could know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. All I know is grace. Jesus manifests his glory through the abundance of his grace. That grace is only available, though, for you who place your faith in Jesus. Believe in him. That's the goal of the book. And the result is life in him. But what about for those of us who are believers? We talked about the times we are weary, we're tired. Where are we seeking blessings? The best is already here. In our story, Jesus said the hour had not yet come, but that doesn't continue. In the end, the hour has come because of the work of Jesus. The best has come. It's Jesus. Our solution, our source of blessing is found in Jesus. He's the best. Stop looking for other things to bring blessings. If it's not Jesus, it's not a blessing. This is the best. But we can hear that, and at least me, I, I get this nagging thing in the back of my mind, and I'm like, really? This? This is the best? Man, because I'm pretty sure I'm already a Christian, and I'm, I'm, I feel low. This is the best? Here's the beauty of the gospel. It's this already, but not yet. The already side is that the best is already here. The solution is here. But the not yet is that the best is yet to come. 
There's something greater coming. This full fulfillment of grace is still to come. It's already offered. We have been justified. We have been made righteous. But the conclusion of that is coming. The covenant has been made. We are redeemed. We are justified. We are the bride of Christ. And like a bride, we wait for the coming groom who will bring blessing and celebration. But in this celebration, the bridegroom will be completely prepared. The wine will not run out. The blessings will not end. I'm going to just read two different passages for us. And I just want you to reflect on this. The first is in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The best is here. Jesus is here. The solution, the grace that Jesus offers is here. But the best is also yet to come. Jesus manifests his glory through the abundance of his grace. Now, both of those elements, both of those things that the best is already here as well as the best is yet to come, we need to remember those things. And how fitting that God gives us something that reminds us of both of those realities. We have the reminder in the Lord's Supper that the best is here, that the solution has been given. Matthew 26, in verse 26, Jesus says, Now as they, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We must remember the best is here. The hour came. It happened. Look at Jesus. He's the only solution. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But right after those verses, that's the part that we usually remember. We remember that element. When we have communion, we reflect on Jesus' death. But Jesus says something more in this passage. 
right after saying that, while he's still doing the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 29 of chapter 26 in Matthew, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The best is yet to come. Jesus is waiting for that time when we are all together. And what is that time? It's the marriage feast of the Lamb, where all of this grace that has been promised will be totally fulfilled.